0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. For many people, the twelfth year is a year of a great pivot. Whether that pivoting has to do with uh, changing bodies, expansive minds, deepened psychology, a more robust emotional life. Many of us experience a development At age 12. For me, it was evidenced uh, once at youth group by a striking gesture of independence. Uh, When I was 12, I was permitted by my rather fretful mother, permitted to go on a youth group venture to Cedar Point, which is a great and nearly magical place. It's an amusement park in Ohio, massive, a lot of great coasters, And uh, I decided that at 12 years old, after being relatively bored with the conversation in my youth group and bored with my youth minister, that I would be a, a, a loner. I would be a lone wolf and I would explore the park and do the things that I wanted to do and go to the rides that I wanted to ride on and consume the foods that I wanted to consume and I wouldn't ask anybody's opinion. And I thought that worked out relatively well until I noticed that it was getting dark, and uh, I thought, oh, I should probably start looking for my compatriots, and uh, had trouble finding them. We were supposed to leave at 8 o'clock, but it was about 11 p.m., and I decided it would be a good idea to wait at the gate until I saw my friends, and we could all depart together. Well, the youth minister spotted me, and with, uh, with both overwhelming joy and rage, ran toward me and swore, me up, swore, swore at me up one side and down the other. And I said, you shouldn't speak that way to me. And he says, I'm swearing at you because I love you. <laughs> uh, it was a great moment of thwarted independence. But In Luke chapter 2, we see something sort of like that and sort of not at all. But in Luke chapter 2, we get a glimpse, a, a, a rare glimpse, into Jesus' own inner development in which we see Jesus learn to live in two houses. Jesus learns to live in the house of man and at the house of God at the same time. And so I want to speak about that tonight: Jesus in the house of man and in the house of God. A little side note, but an important one: uh, it is uh, it is a, not a not an insignificant thing that most of Jesus's life remains unrecorded and unknown. From ages two to twelve, uh, we know nothing about what occurs to Jesus, and from ages to twelve and You know, 12 and a half to uh, to age 30, we know nothing about what happens to Jesus. And uh, some would regard that as very disappointing storytelling. And some in the early church did, and so you had Christians, mostly Gnostic Christians, people on the very fringes of uh, the Christian movement, who decided to fill in the gaps So they wrote Gospels in the 3rd and 4th century, which we regard now as Gnostic Gospels, and these Gnostic Christians uh, decided to uh, invent stories about what Jesus was like as a child. I will tell you two of my favorites. The Infancy Gospel of Thomas says that when Jesus was trying to impress his friends, who didn't believe in his powers, he took mud in his hands and he formed the mud into the shapes of doves, and then the doves became alive and flew away. Very impressive. Later in his life, and this is recorded in the Arabic Infancy Gospel, uh, Jesus is running by uh, a shop where, uh, where the, the, um, the owner had out on a display lots of white cloths that he was then, later that afternoon, going to dye particular colors. Jesus saw a big cauldron of indigo dye and threw in all of the white cloths into that indigo-colored uh, pot. And... When the shopkeeper said, Jesus, why have you done this unto me? Uh, Jesus said, do not be much afraid, uh, for I will take the cloths out of the dye in any color that I wish. And he proceeded to do so and gave people lots of various colored uh, cloths to, uh, to impress the audience. And evidently he succeeded. But, but those are the Gnostic Gospels. In the earliest texts that we have, which are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we know nothing about Jesus' young life with the exception of this story. Why is that? Is it just bad storytelling? No. It's because special revelation, that is, Scripture, only reveals to us that which is, well, special. It doesn't reveal what Jesus' favorite foods were because it doesn't care and doesn't think that we ought to care. And so it only tends to record things that will have uh, uh, some sort of impact on a wider audience and lead that audience to Christ himself. And so we have uh, have a Jesus who for most of his life, if I can put this in a way that isn't insulting, lived a rather unremarkable life. Part of incarnation doesn't mean just joining us as human beings in our lows, low points and high points, but joining us in the mundane parts of life. And that's what Jesus did for most of his existence. Okay, side note over. Uh, Luke chapter 2 is remarkable because it gives us a glimpse of a Christ in whom humanity and divinity find connection. And we learn about a Christ who lives within two houses. And so I want to walk through the passage. Uh, I invite you to take out your bulletin and read along with me as we learn about the house of man. get to learn about Jesus' own immediate family. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But, they, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Verse 48. To that verse. Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress." We learn a few things about Jesus' family, the house of man into which he was born. The first is that Jesus' family were devout; they're devout people, church-going folks, if you will. Uh, we know this because of what Luke has said in his gospel so far. We know that they had Jesus circumcised eight days after he was born to show that he was a, a member of the covenant uh, of the covenant people. Later, Mary goes to the temple for her rite of purification after she was regarded as unclean because of having a child. Later. Uh, Mary and Joseph both dedicated their firstborn son to God, as was the uh, Levitical practice of the day. Now we read, and this is not mandated in Scripture, it's actually going above and beyond, they make a yearly pilgrimage to the city of Jerusalem in order to celebrate the Passover, that great festival and feast where, uh, whereby people remember that they are an emancipated people from the dark powers of uh, political corruption and enslavement in Egypt. And so, <clears throat> this is what they do. This is what they uh, engage in as a family. And it's also notable, say say uh, some scholars, uh, that Jesus is coming to this temple, at, uh, in, engaging in this custom when he's 12 years old. Because at that time, there was in formation a kind of proto-bar mitzvah, where young men uh, were entering more fully into the practice of, uh, of uh, outward observance related to feasts and festivals. When you became a man, you started practicing more publicly. And so it's a devout family. More than that, it's a well-connected family. It's a big family. This is why Jesus could get lost within a family as they were caravanning together to the city. Big family. So somebody probably thought that You know, Uncle Solomon was watching Jesus, and uh, what's a good Jewish name for a woman? Aunt Nancy was watching Jesus, and some grandpa was watching Jesus, but evidently nobody was watching Jesus. And this isn't hard to imagine if you come from a Greek, Italian, or Middle Eastern family. This is just how things operate. Uh, I entered into this, friends, from my family of sort of quiet, subdued, repressed uh, um, German Scots. I mean, we just get together and don't talk, and there are like three of us in a room, and the television is on, and then we go home, and we're relieved, <laughs> You're totally relieved. Um, Monique's family is very different than that. Uh, when I first met all of her family, uh, about 90 million of them were in one room because her brother came home from, uh, from serving in the military, and they were all wanting to get to, get to know me, and of course, more importantly, greet him. I was so exhausted after an hour of these encounters that I asked my new girlfriend, Monique, if I could go away in a bedroom somewhere and take a nap, which I did, and it didn't help. Um, I was just overwhelmed by the experience. This is Jesus' family. It's a well-connected family. It's a big family. And so he grows up with a lot of relatives. It's also, if I can put it this way, a normal family. When a kid vanishes, they freak out. They panic and you would too. Uh, Jesus' family gets very uncomfortable uh, with uh, with his absence, and even more so than we would, because he's the Son of God. I mean, it's one thing to lose a child, but it's another to lose the child of the promise that will redeem humanity, uh, uh, over whom you're supposed to be a, a watchman. And all of a sudden, he's gone. And so they, of all people, ought to be Frightened and terrified, given that they know who he is. You know that there's that very sweet and lovely and dopey Christmas song, "Mary, Did You Know?" You know, and the 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 author is asking Mary these questions. Did you know? You know that your son was the son of God. And she, she did, though. Like she did. That's what virgin birth. And I mean, you know, like she understood who this was, and so she understands the catastrophic loss of this child. And so you see this family devout, well connected, and normal. They're normal people who panic, and so I want to I want to say that this is Jesus' family. This is the house of man into which he was born. It's a family that's imperfect. There are uh, there are uh, pressures and tensions within this family. We see pressure at Jesus' first miracle when uh, when at a wedding in Cana of Galilee they run out of wine and. What does Jesus' mother do? She steps right in and says, don't worry, my son will fix everything. Uh, But but then you have have more misunderstanding of Jesus by his own family. In Mark chapter 3, they're scandalized by some of his teachings and so they send the family, take him away because they believed he was out of his mind. And then, moreover, you see unbelief in Jesus' own family. Uh, James, his own brother, didn't believe in him until after the resurrection. It's a devout, well-connected, normal family, and that means tension. We have a very human situation uh, into which Jesus was born. You know, sometimes our image of Jesus is confined to stained glass and statues and icons and in our day coffee mugs and bumper stickers and, uh, and, and tchotchke. But sometimes the result of both good and bad iconography is that Jesus becomes more principle than person. And we lose the, the facthood of incarnation of a God who comes to dwell with us in physical form. We approach, as Christians, we approach a God with a pulse. We huddle around a human Messiah who was born into the house of man and had to learn about life in that context. But Jesus also is present in the house of God, quite literally in the temple, as we read in this passage, in verse 46. After three days, they found Jesus in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Now notice what Jesus is doing. He is not anxious. He's not strained. And he's not looking for anybody. He is sitting in a learning posture. And speaking with the proverbial Stephen Jay Goulds and Stephen Hawking's of the day, he's talking to the intellectuals, those who have mastered the craft of religion, and he's both receptive and productive. He's listening to them and asking them questions, and then he's also giving some answers of his own. And they're shocked by what he's saying. They're impressed. For Jesus, his own behavior, including his disappearance for three days, is normal, inoffensive, and predictable. And so when Jesus is confronted by his parents, he's somewhat surprised that they didn't know, couldn't apprehend where he'd be. Jesus is confronted, though, and we hear the first recorded words of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. You see the mutual confusion? He's confused that they don't understand. <laughs> They're confused that he doesn't understand. And then speaking this way about a father's house, or some translations of father's labor work. Mutual confusion. Jesus' first words are striking because of what Mary asks him. Mary says, "...behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress." And he says that I'm in my father's house. Notice the paternity language there. Uh, Jesus um, has a preference for and allegiance to the archetypal heavenly father over his own family, over his own biology. Father, and notice, he doesn't just know uh, know God is... His father in general. You know, uh, Harnack, the German theologian who wrote some good things and some crazy things, like many Germans, but good things and crazy things. Uh, Harnack said that the summary of Christianity was the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. Eh, maybe. No, no probably not. Um, there's a lot of crosses absent from that definition. But nevertheless, this is not what Jesus is saying. He's not talking about fatherhood in general. He's talking about my father. That he was in the temple his father's house, my father's house. In other words, Jesus is discovering even in this early age that he has this organic connection, this unity between himself and his father that supersedes biology, preference for the heavenly father. And this preference for the house of God, preference for this connection with the ultimate, with the great father, uh, it, it filters into Jesus' teaching uh, to his disciples as well. Filters in in all sorts of places. I'll just read you two of the Matthew 10. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Connection to the incarnate God in Christ is more important than biology. And in Mark chapter 3, who are my mother and my brothers? Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Again, relationship to God superseding biology. And so we have Jesus learning to grow and function in the house of man, and Jesus learning to grow and function in the house of God and discovering and expressing this deep connection that he has with the archetypal father. And then we read about the, uh, the conclusion uh, of, this, uh, of this episode. We read of the conclusion in verse 51. And he, Jesus, went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Two remarkable things. It is a remarkable thing that the flawless authority of heaven and earth willingly submitted to flawed human parents. One of the glories of the incarnation is that God enters in not to just skin and muscle tissue and bones, but enters into a family and is raised by an imperfect family, a family that will both bless him and hurt him. Moreover, it's a remarkable thing that Jesus increases, doesn't just grow physically, but grows in wisdom. That wisdom related to God and to man, according to the text, both houses. The incarnation is a full incarnation. Jesus embraces the totality of the human experience. There is a very understandable heresy in the ancient church that was condemned at the Council of Chalcedon. I always say it's a great heresy, not because it's a great heresy, but because it has a great name. The name is Apollinarianism. I mean, come on, Apollinarianism? Aren't we all afraid of that when we go to sleep at night? I mean, oh my gosh, somebody somewhere in the world believes in Apollinarianism. But Apollinarianism uh, is, is a belief that goes something like this. The Incarnation is true. In Jesus Christ, God does adopt a physical form. Flesh and bones, everything but he retains a divine mind only. So therefore you could have gone to the a two-year-old Jesus and asked him to describe for you the most complex trigonometry and explain it to you and he would be able to do so. Or you could go and ask the three-year-old Jesus about the doctrine of the Trinity and he'd be able to define it perfectly. But instead, in the Gospels, we see a Jesus who grows in wisdom and in stature in relation to God and man. And so, in the Incarnation, God adopts a human mind as well. And the early church concluded, very wisely, they said, not only is Apollinarianism unbiblical, it's also not pastoral. The early church had this phrase they bandied about, and it was this, what is not assumed is not healed. What is not assumed or taken up, embraced in the Incarnation, can't be healed. Ultimately, what the Lord is doing by taking up flesh and bones and emotion, feeling, senses, and a mind, is that he wants to redeem all of you, not just your soul. All of you. And so Jesus dies for all of you, becomes human for all of you. Every part. And so in Luke chapter 2, we witness a Christ who grows up in the house of man and the house of God. So, how on earth would this relate to us? Well, I think it's, there's a word to us and a word for us. Here's the word to us. You belong, and I belong, we belong, in two houses. The house of man and the house of God. We were born into the first, and we were adopted by grace into the second. But we are members of the house of man and the house of God. The house of man, your, uh, your biological family, more broadly though, your clan, your society, your country, From them, we receive, at least from some of them, we receive DNA, height, dental issues, body shapes, language, uh, much of our psychology, our religious identity, sometimes our political affiliations. We also belong to the house of God, our heavenly family, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the community that He has created on earth. Uh, And from them, we receive uh, truth, an understanding of righteousness. Most importantly, uh, an understanding of grace and mercy. And let me say this. When the purposes of these two houses are aligned, life flourishes. When the house of man aligns with the house of God, and when there's a healthful connection between the two, uh, we grow as human beings. But when they are out of accord, and in a fallen world they often will be, we have to take a page from Jesus' own playbook and have a preference. And the preferences for the house of God rather than the house of man when it is corrupted. And in this way, this passage and others like it, demystifies and de-idolizes the nuclear family. The key of belonging in the New Testament is not the nuclear family, good as it is, but the family huddled around Christ. And so when our families belittle our trust in Christ, We don't betray Christ so that they will feel better, though that doesn't mean being a jerk either. We don't betray Christ. Instead, we go to the house of God. And when our families want us to be silent over some dark inner family cover-up, some serious offense, and just bury it, not express it, we don't do that. We go to the house of God where we can be honest about real problems. And when our families or our society demands that we major in a particular subject or take a particular job for the sole sake of just making money, even though we hate every moment of it, it's not our calling and it's not what God has told us to do, we go to the house of God rather than the house of man. And um, in, in our broader cultural family, and I don't care these days whether it's from the cultural right or the cultural left, whenever it contradicts the Sermon on the Mount, we get off the bus. We don't live in the house of man, then we live in the house of God. And so we always have to have a preference for righteousness and grace over over falsehood and corruption. If there is to be a preference, uh, we must hear the apostles who said to the Sanhedrin itself, we must obey God rather than you. So that's the word to us, I think. And a word for us, even in the 12-year-old Jesus, we see a glimmer of the... Ground-shaking truth that Jesus will be a person of mediation, bringing two houses together again that were once separated. In Job chapter 9, we hear the tormented Job crying out, crying out to God, asking that somebody could mediate between Job and his own suffering and God who seems distant and disinterested. This is what Job says. If only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's uh, rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. First Timothy 2. A fulfillment. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for us all. Mediation. Jesus, the corridor. The corridor between the two houses. The cross of Christ holds up that corridor, establishing it forever, and it is painted with words of lavish pardon. And everyone here, and everyone we love, in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. For all who serve God in the church, for the special needs and concerns of this congregation, I invite your petition. Father, thank you.